looking at verses 11 through 14, five verses today as Paul confronts prejudice. Paul confronts prejudice. We all deal with prejudice in how we were raised and even as believers in Christ now. It's something that we have to deal with on a continual basis. Paul's going to deal with that today. So I want to let you know to look at the screens. I'm going to read from the message, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It is a paraphrase. It's not a translation. And then after we read the scripture reading, we'll jump back into the ESV version. But I think it's good to sometimes see it in a different light. So look at the screens, if you would. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul said later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in the Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you are a Jew living like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem buddies. And may God at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. And let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray for clarity. I pray for understanding. Uh, Some of these subjects are deep and difficult, and I pray that we can uh, unfold them in simple ways that make it understandable. I pray you illumine us with your Holy Spirit as we look to your word today and allow it to speak to us and change our lives. We thank you for the power that's in the word of God. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosea Ballou said this, hypocrisy is often clothed in the garb of religion. And that's true. We could think about that. There was a father who sat down with his family at mealtime. And he said his regular mealtime prayer of grace, thanking God for the hands that prepared the food. Thank you for this day, and thank you for the energy that we receive from it. And may we live a life that pleases you. And he said, amen. And then as he began to eat the meal, he began to complain to his wife about the bitter coffee, about the bread wasn't very fresh, and the cheese was rather sharp. And so all of a sudden, his little daughter turned and said, Daddy... Do you remember what you prayed before mealtime? Do you think God heard that prayer? And he said, well, yes, of course. Well, Daddy, do you think God heard what you said about the bread and the cheese and the coffee? And he sheepishly said, yes. And then he realized his hypocrisy because all he did was pray from rote memory for the meal, didn't have a real conversation with God, and yet God heard both of those things. And she pointed out, the hypocrisy. By not concentrating on that important conversation, he had left the door open to let hypocrisy sneak in. So we all fall from time to time into the trap of hypocrisy, knowingly and unknowingly. Paul had a difficult task in front of him as he protected the true gospel that was revealed to him from Christ. 
He had to confront Simon Peter, who is considered by some the preeminent apostle and leader in the early church. Let's get to the story, and I encourage you to take out your outline. First thing we see is the charge, hypocrisy. The charge, hypocrisy. Look at verses 11 and 12 in the ESV version. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now in Galatians 2.11 and following, this all occurs in Syrian Antioch, which was the first church planted in a Gentile area. And Paul and Barnabas are the co-pastors of that church, along with three other men. It tells us in Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and then also Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or the Apostle Paul. So verse 11 is significant because the Jewish legalists were telling the churches in the Galatia area that Paul was not a true apostle. We saw that all through the beginning of this book, chapter 1, and then even into chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul was not only equal to the apostles, but he felt compelled to confront Peter. And that took a lot of courage and confidence and a calling from God. You see, Peter and Paul had both experienced salvation through grace, through faith. Both were directly chosen by the resurrected Christ to be apostles. Both Paul and Peter have been used mightily by the Holy Spirit to reach and disciple Jews and Gentiles for Christ. And the book of Acts is divided by their ministry journeys. Acts chapter 1 through 12 talks about Peter's journey, and then 13 through 28 of Acts, Peter's or Paul's journey with the Gentiles. And so at Antioch, these two men experienced a head-on collision relationally. So the first point under this main point is the fear of men. The fear of men. Peter was fearful of men. Notice it says there in verse 11 that Paul opposed him. That means forbid him, hindered him. Peter was withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles. He was in effect siding with the Jewish legalists requiring circumcision and to be observant of the Jewish customs and laws as part of salvation. Condemned, it says in verse 11. Peter was guilty of sin by taking a position he knew, and he stated in Acts 15, that was wrong. He stood condemned of hypocrisy in the eyes of the believers in Antioch. And these believers who were well-grounded in the gospel of grace were hurt and perplexed by Peter's hypocrisy. Before Peter's compromise with the Jewish legalists could do serious damage to the church in Antioch, Paul nipped it in the bud. And Paul was committed to the church being all that God wants it to be for the glory of God. In Ephesians 5, 26 through 27, we see the heart of, God, of, Pete, of Paul about what he thinks about the church. And he says in Ephesians 5 that Christ might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so Paul, being the apostle he was, felt the charge to make sure that he did everything he could to protect, in this situation, the gospel. At any rate, Peter's conduct in Antioch produced a tense face-to-face confrontation between two Christian leaders. And Paul felt compelled to rebuke and condemn Peter for his actions, thus defending the gospel and demonstrating again his own independence and equality as an apostle. 
In Galatians 5.12, or I'm sorry, 2.12 it should be, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter was having table fellowship with the Gentile believers until some from James arrived. These were Jewish people sent from the church in Jerusalem, and what they taught was based on kosher laws in Leviticus 11, not to eat with Gentiles for fear of consuming unclean food. Gentiles noted because of this issue that Jews needed to live a separate life from the Jews. Michael Byrd in his book, The Saving Righteousness of God, said Peter's separation signified a denial of the equal status of Gentiles in a messianic community and represented a demand that Gentiles would have to Judaize or undergo circumcision in order to attain that status. Paul's rebuff to Peter concerns the sufficiency of faith in Christ for the entrance and inclusion of the Gentiles as Gentiles in God's saving action. No difference between Jew and Gentile. And so James, like Peter, struggled to give up his lifelong habit of adhering to the laws and customs of Moses. James probably had to battle also the remnants of prejudice against the Gentiles because that was how he grew up and that's how he was taught, and rightly so up to this point. But despite all that, there's no way James would have sent these Jewish legalists to undermine the Gentile church in Antioch. The apostles were seeking unity and harmony around the gospel. And if you read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, you see it ended with a unified, united statement. The imperfect tense of the verbs in verse 12 show that Peter was gradually, slowly receding each time a little more from eating with the Gentiles. And at some points, he was still probably participating in the Lord's Supper with them. He ate what was set before him and with whomever was at the meal with him up to this point. But when the Jewish legalists came to Antioch, he withdrew from eating and fellowship with the Gentile believers. Peter became prejudiced against the Gentile believers. Notice it says withdraw from the Gentile believers. Withdraw, a strategic military disengagement. Polybius said it's used to describe troops withdrawing from the enemy to seek shelter and protection. And so Peter capitulated to the ritual and racism of the Jews. He rejected their invitations and he stayed away from them as much as possible. You see, the old apostle Peter showed up once again. Remember, Peter, just before Christ's crucifixion, denied Christ three times. Earlier, In Jesus' ministry, Peter said Jesus was the son of the living God only a few minutes later to be rebuked by Jesus from other words that he had said. He was called to preach, but he went back to fishing until he encountered Christ on the shore at breakfast after the resurrection. Peter was fearful of the Jewish legalists, and they didn't come to stone the believers or put them in prison, but Peter feared that the Jewish legalists would ridicule and malign him in Jerusalem, and later possibly ridicule and malign Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. And Peter was afraid to lose popularity and prestige with a group of self-righteous hypocrites whose doctrines were false and whose tactics were deceitful. So we as believers, we struggle with this as well. Sometimes we are strong and courageous in our faith, and other times when maybe we're outnumbered and we're by ourselves, we shy away 
Or maybe we're even uh, weak in the sense that we compromise by what we say about our faith. We all battle with hypocrisy. We all fall into the same trap as Peter did when we show prejudice against other believers for whatever reason. Think of Elijah on the Mount Carmel. He challenged the prophets of Baal. And when God sent down the fire and consumed his sacrifice, it killed 700 Baal prophets. And so he won a great victory. But then what happened? He heard Jezebel, Ahab's wife, was going to come and kill him. So what did he do? He ran and hid out of fear. We're all capable of doing that. And before Christ, you and I, if we were honest, put people in categories and we compared ourselves to each other. And we still even battle that as a believer. After Christ, there should be no distinction in our thinking and treatment of each person we encounter, no exceptions. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And while some Christians in the past have tried to build a theology around white people being superior to black people, I remember this growing up in the South, it's painfully wrong. Some taught and continue to teach that African-American people were black due to the curse of Noah put on Ham. Noah, the father, cursed Ham, his son, for seeing him naked when Noah was drunk. And so they ended up, this is where the idea of slavery was supported from Scripture. This is absolutely false teaching. So we're called not to show differences and distinctions in the church, but we are called and should celebrate diversity, the uniqueness of all people, of all cultures, of all time. The labels men put on each other are irrelevant to God and should be irrelevant to people. Galatians 3.26, which we'll get to later, as we continue verse by verse through this book, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We see, second of all, the force of influence. The force of influence. People looking at Peter, a leader in the Jerusalem church there in Antioch, withdrawing from fellowshipping with the Gentiles, had a tremendous impact on that church. Look at verse 13 of Galatians 2. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, So that even Barnabas, one of the co-pastors, was led astray by their hypocrisy. The rest of the Jewish believers in the church at Antioch withdrew from fellowshipping with the brothers and sisters in Christ who were Gentiles. Notice it said acted hypocritically. We get that word from a Greek word talking about a Greek actor in a play or musical who wears a mask to take on a different role or a different mood in the play. And the idea is a hypocrite is someone who masks his true self. In this case, it meant living a Torah-observant lifestyle while saying the gospel is based on grace through faith alone. This goes beyond living according to your Christian life based on grace through salvation and faith, not on works. As we see, it's not the way of sanctification and it's a way to lead to slavery. There are two tragedies in Peter's fall. First, it made him a hypocrite. Peter pretended that his actions were motivated by faithfulness when they really were motivated by fear. And how easy it is to use, quote, Bible doctrine, end of quote, to cover up our disobedience. The second tragedy is that Peter led others astray with him. Even Barnabas was involved. Now, Barnabas had been one of the spiritual leaders, one of the co-pastors of this church. 
So his disobedience would have tremendous influence on the others in the fellowship. Suppose Peter and Barnabas had won the day and led the church into legalism. What might the results have been? Would Antioch have continued to be the great missionary church that sent out Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13? Would they instead have sent out the missionaries of the circumcision party and either captured or divided the churches Paul had already founded? You can see that this problem was not a matter of personality or party. It was a question of the truth of the gospel, and Paul was prepared to fight for it. Just a side note here, it may have been Barnabas' hypocrisy in this situation that began the eventual rift with Paul that short time later resulted in their separation because they argued over whether John Mark should go on the next missionary journey with them in Acts 15, verses 37 through 40, and there was sharp disagreement and they split ways. Paul rebuked Peter because he saw his actions as denying the truth of the gospel by his actions. You see the Jews and Gentile believers were both receiving the same covenant promises offered to them by faith in Christ according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So our application is this. While we care about our earthly relationships, our relationship with our Heavenly Father is of most importance. That is so important to us because there's so many times when we're in situations and people ask us, tough questions on what we believe and are we going to speak the truth? Are we going to be faithful to it because we fear our Lord in a reverent and honoring way? Well, Paul confronts Peter on not only his hypocrisy, but the source of it. What caused it? Well, Peter's prejudiced. The confrontation is over prejudice. Look at verse 14, the last verse we'll look at this morning. It says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, the conduct in question, it was the unity of the church that was the issue in verse 14. Peter was a Jew, but through his faith in Christ, he had become a Christian. And because he was Christian, he was now part of the church. And in the church, there are no racial distinctions as we just read in Galatians 3. We have... We have seen how the Lord taught Peter this important lesson. First, when he had that vision where the sheet came down and God said, there isn't anything unclean to eat. And then he goes to Cornelius, the Gentile's house, and fellowships with them, and then to the Jerusalem council where he speaks in favor of fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Peter himself has stated at that Jerusalem council that God had put no difference between us and them in Acts 15.9. But now Peter was putting a difference between God's people. And God's people are one people, even though they may be divided into various groups. And any practice on our part that violates the scripture and separates brother from brother is a denial of the unity of the body of Christ. So the Bible teaches that as a believer, we have a responsibility to lovingly, with grace, confront people when they're involved in public sin. Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So when someone offends us or hurts us, we have a responsibility to go and sit down with them and to seek reconciliation, to confess we did something wrong or that person did, and to seek forgiveness and healing in that situation. 
Augustine said it's not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. You can't let it go. So the Bible in Matthew 18 talks about church restoration process. And it's important. You can go through where one-on-one, and then if that doesn't work, you bring two people together, and then you involve the elders of the church if necessary. But church restoration is important. It shows that the church takes sin seriously. It shows the church is obedient and committed to the whole counsel of God, regardless of what the culture and other people think. Church restoration, going through Matthew 18, is a deterrent to sin. And it's a beautiful thing to see repentance and reconciliation within the local body of believers. And that's the ultimate goal of pointing out and dealing with public sin in a loving and godly way. It grieves my heart to say that we had to go through that here in the last 15 years twice. And we took a year in each of those situations to talk, to pray, to seek repentance and forgiveness. And we, we spent a year doing that. You don't rush to judgment. Well, back to verse 14. He uses the word straightforward there. To walk straight or uprightly, uprightly, literally, it's a compound Greek word meaning straight foot, straight foot. One scholar translates verse 14 as they were not walking on the straight path towards the gospel. Paul's heart in confronting Peter was not to humiliate him or to elevate himself, Paul, as a superior or more righteous apostle. Paul wanted to be sure that the teaching of the true gospel continued unhindered. Paul's loyalty was to the revelation he received from Christ concerning the gospel. And the clarity of the gospel was more important than that of a preeminent apostle who was straying away from the gospel to be fearful of confronting him. So we all need to keep in mind some practical, important principles. First of all, keep this in mind that uniquely gifted ministers of the gospel can commit serious transgressions. Sometimes they're guilty of the same sins and actions that they are preaching against. Second, we learn that faithfulness involves more than believing the right doctrine. Right doctrine without right behavior breeds hypocrisy. Third, we learn that truth is more important than outward harmony and peace. Christian unity and harmony are always built on the truth and not on falsehood. Compromise always weakens a church. And I remember going to my previous church, and the second Sunday I was there, the president of that particular Baptist organization said, we are to maintain peace in the church at any cost. That is false. Maintaining peace at all costs is not peace at all, it's compromise. Fourthly, we see that relative truth or situational ethics is an ungodly ethic. God's word, not a given situation, determines what is right and what is wrong. I was listening to uh, Tony Evans this week, Two Minutes with Tony on WDLM. And uh, he talked about this. He said, if you come to me personally with a problem, an issue in your life, he says, I'm going to take you to this book, the Bible, because it answers all the issues of problems in our life. And I'm going to help you work through that problem and get healing and restoration. He said, if a married couple comes to me and says they're having a problem in their relationship with one another, I'm going to take you to this book 
because it's inerrant, inspired of God, final authority. It's going to give you the answers to help you work through your relationship. He said, if I uh, go to a church and they're having problems with the leadership and the elders, I'm going to pull out this book and I'm going to look into it and we're going to study it and we're going to see what the answers are to bring restoration and healing. But he said, if a government official comes to me, he says, I don't pull out another book. He says, I pull out this book and we go to what the word of God says. He says, the problem is too many of us, we want to go to a different book for solutions. And that is so important. Neither expediency, falsely divine love, nor majority vote have any bearing on truth and righteousness. Fifth, we learn that falsehood is not to be ignored regardless of the consequences that result from pointing it out. When the falsehood attacks the gospel, as is the case in Galatians, opposition to false teaching is more imperative. According to 1 Timothy 5.20, even leading Christians who continue to sin are to be rebuked. Paul said, them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear, may have respect, may know that their sin is going to be dealt with. And then we see lastly today the challenge, the challenge to the conduct, the challenge to Peter's conduct. Look at the end of verse 14, if you would, of Galatians 2. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He challenged Peter before everyone because Peter's hypocrisy and prejudice had affected many of the Jewish believers in the church. It was necessary, as he said there, to confront him in front of them all. So all involved would hear the same words. And when you deal with a public offense like this, you involve only the people who were connected to the sin issue. In this case, it was a large group of people. Paul's words must have stung Peter. He said, you are a Jew, yet you've been living like a Gentile. Now you want the Gentiles to live like Jews. What kind of inconsistency is that? Peter's response is not recorded. What we read earlier, he stood condemned. He was acting contrary to his own convictions. He was betraying Christian liberty and was casting a slur on fellow believers. So it's interesting, Paul didn't agree to disagree. He took a firm stance against shying away from the true gospel. Agreeing to disagree was not the path to unity in the body. In the body, unity comes through the gospel and preserving the gospel and the path to true unity. This to me is evidence that Paul was, Peter was not living a toward observant lifestyle. Paul would be hypocritical in confronting Peter if Paul was still living that torrent observant lifestyle himself. So here's some, here's some things that we can apply to our lives to think about as we think about this area of prejudice because we all battle with this. Some of you grew up in the South and you got that measure of prejudice. I remember moving from uh, the North to the South and, and dealing with some of that myself and just the, the fact that uh, the Southern People looked at the Civil War as the aggression of the Northern Army, you know, and all these things. And we see these prejudices. How do we deal with them? Well, here's a few things to write down and think about. There is only one human race, and we are all part of it. We all came from Adam and Eve. Yes, there's many people of different ethnicities and colors of skin and all these things, but there's only one human race, and we are all a part of it. Second of all, we're all made in the image of God. So each person that we run into deserves to be treated with dignity 
and respect. Deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. That's important. Whether they're a, a non-believer or a believer. Because they're made in the image of God. We're not to strive to be colorblind. I used to think that for a long time. But we're to celebrate our diversity as human beings. We're going to celebrate our differences. We complement one another. I loved going to Africa and Kenya and worshiping under a tree in 90 degrees and watching those people take a plastic tub and do their dances and all those things. That was church for them. And it was awesome. And can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven when we see all the diversity there as we worship around God's throne? Fourthly, we should attempt to build relationships with other people unlike ourselves. Face it, we get into our silos. If you look at our friends, we tend to have friends that think like we do and have the same values, and that's not wrong and that's not bad. But are there times that we step out of our comfort zone and get to know people, a Republican, to get to know a Democrat, a Caucasian person meeting with an African-American and building a relationship? Differences, diversity, and not dealing with prejudice. And number five, how we respond to prejudice reflects on how we represent Christ in his church. This is so important. How we respond tells us more than what you say you believe. In other words, your actions speak louder than your words. How you live out, not being prejudiced, but loving, respecting, treating people with dignity and respect, speaks volumes about the church, about Christ, about who you represent These five things are very, very important for us to hold on to in our current environment and our culture. Prejudice can be more than skin color. It can be religion. It can be culture. It can be socioeconomic situations. It could be where you live, north and south. It could be education. It could be politics. There's so many things. We think of it as a color of skin thing, but it's way more than that. So our application here is that we live, love, and celebrate all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we preach each. We appreciate each one's unique diversity. We live, love, and celebrate all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we appreciate each one's unique diversity. Paul continues to establish his apostleship and his passion to protect the true gospel for his churches and the churches to come in the future of which we are one. We should be thankful to the extent Paul went in keeping and preserving the gospel for future generations. The key thought is this, Christ's followers are commanded to confront in love with the goal to restore our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be in harmony with our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. God desires for us to be right with him and right as we can be, making peace as, as, as much as possible, as it says in Romans, with our brothers and sisters here on earth in the church. So some questions to ponder this week as we close. How have you given into hypocritical behavior in the past? Something to think about, something to dwell on, something to learn from so we don't jump into that in the future. Second of all, why is it hard to stand alone when the crowd is going the other way? I know for myself, this is becoming increasing, increasingly more and more difficult as we see the darkness overtake our culture. But we have to be a Daniel, dare to be a Daniel, to stand, to stand for the truth. And then lastly, are you willing to speak into someone's life who you see is going astray? 
Folks, I wish I had the time, but every week I'd see at least one, two, or three Christian leaders just compromising, just caving in. People I used to look up to, people I read their books, and it breaks my heart. And that's why we're going through this series, because we've got to stay true and not let this culture around us. As it says in, in the Phillips translation of Romans 12 too, don't mold us into this world, don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The world around us wants to conform us and shape us and change us and make us more accepting of sin than ever before. So we must stay true, stay true to the gospel and the word of God. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here today with every head bowed and every eye closed and you're struggling with someone. You see them straying and you want to reach out and help them. And I hope you'll be, like it says in Jude, to reach out to someone to snatch them from the fire but not polluting yourself with the stains of the world. There are people all around us and maybe you're here today, maybe you see someone in your own family or a coworker or someone else that's straying and you say, God, give me the courage, give me the love and the grace to talk with this person, to confront them. If you know of someone like that, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to slip your hand up so I can pray for you. Someone that you know, yes, that you can, yes, that you can reach out to, that you can have a conversation with, that you point them back to the truth. This is so critical because these conversations are not happening. Anyone else, just before we pray. Let's pray. Father, I lift up these two brothers that raised their hands. Lord, I pray that you help them. Help them to know what to say. Help them to prayerfully have an intersection in their relationship to sit down and to talk with them in a loving, graceful way to show them the truth. Lord, that's true love when we speak the truth in love, when we want to point somebody back to what's beneficial to them instead of watching them slowly go into a head-on collision and destroy and destruct things in their life. Lord, I pray we would have a passion to point people back to that true gospel, to help them to stay faithful, to know that Jesus is worth it. He's worth it no matter what happens in this life. And that one day we'll, we'll rejoice in heaven because we were faithful to the true gospel of Christ. We pray and ask these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen.